Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research on neuroscience and psychology while talking through our own personal experiences. And this week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Jordan Wiley, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Boston College in the Morality Lab. We spoke about her research on morality. We discuss how morality research looks in the sciences, because this is something that we usually relate to philosophy discipline. She explains her work on moral curiosity and why we're always interested in morally bad people. And Jordan also talks us through her research on phantom rules. And these are rules such as jaywalking, which are only enforced sometimes, and why do we enforce them in these situations? We also speak about Jordan's work on how our moral values influence how we feel about harm reduction policies. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and I moved to New York City for grad school in part because I really wanted to go to grad school and learn more about psychology and in part because I really wanted to move to New York City. <laughs> One way to get out of the South for me and, you know, follow my my budding passion. And uh, even though I really don't like the cold, I found myself continuing to move North. So I'm now in Boston doing a postdoc with with Leanne Young and Greg Sparkman and in the lab and my postdoc is, is really focused a lot on understanding how we evaluate pro-social agents and their sig- pro-social signaling and you know from my perspective as well why and when we're curious about them when we're curious to learn more about pro-social agents and the, and the sorts of causes that they're signaling. So really broadly, my research interests are about rules and understanding when people break the rules, when we're interested in them, how we make evaluations about them, when our own rules are, break it, are broken, how we evaluate and, and sort of understand and reconcile the, that feeling. And then when other people break rules, you know, not just in a negative way, but like, do something exceedingly morally good. That's sort of rule, it's a rule breaking of a sort, when and why that makes us curious to know more about them. Yeah, that's super interesting. Usually when we think about studying morality, we think of it more as something that you study in philosophy and think about, you know, what it, what morality means and these kind of things. So it's, it's really cool that you're doing this in a scientific setting. Could you explain how that field works? So how do we even operationalize morality? How, yeah, how do you, do you do that really? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is such a fun, big question. And, you know, for better or worse, moral psychologists, I don't think ask this question very frequently or interrogate this question frequently. It's fun to, yeah think about really deeply what I mean. I think the field of, like really broadly, the field of moral psychology is focused on why and how people are coming to the sorts of decisions that they do about others' actions, their character, also evaluations of their own actions and character. There's a ton of work in, in moral psychology on the developmental side, when kids care about moral rules, which rules they care about, when and how they differentiate between rules that are moral and rules that are conventional. So, and, and so much more. And there's so much work in, in the developmental space. 
And then there's this other really large amount of work in, and you know, so much ink has been spilled, arguing over what kinds of content count as moral. So things, whether it's all about harm perceived or sort of otherwise, things that relate, whether it's actually about things that relate to a bunch of different domains, like authority and fairness, and think, you know, these domains should emerge across different cultures, whether the process by which we reason about our moral judgments has to do with intuition or deliberation. Like these sort of like arguments are, are really constant and, and make up a lot, a bulk even of the moral psychology literature. But, you know, in my own work, what I really mean when I'm thinking about morality is thinking about morality as relating to sort of the actions, the agents and the behaviors that seem like objective truths that seem sort of self-evident and pertain to evaluations of good or bad, right or wrong, or blameworthiness or praiseworthiness. That's what's really special about morality, in my opinion, is that objective feeling. Like, it's so obvious that it's wrong to do X or Y. So in terms of this objective truth, do you study that in terms of what... So do you first say, okay, I think an objective truth in morality is you should never hurt someone? Or are you looking to see how we make our own objective truths through that? A lot of work has been done, work by Jeff Goodwin, for example, has been done investigating this objective sort of quality of of the moral domain. And my work doesn't assess that that feature of the moral domain very frequently, I've leveraged a lot of the work that, that's been done in the past when I'm operationalizing and thinking about the sorts of things that I mean when I use the word morality. But some of some of my work on in the harm reduction space, for example, when we try to measure what people's moral opinions are, we were really confronted with this question. How do you really get at this thing? And we pulled a lot from, you know, work by Jeff and, and work by Linda Skitka on moral convictions and this like, conviction quality of morality. And we find that you can sort of get at these opinions that people have by asking all of these questions that kind of pull from the affective qualities of morality alongside this feeling that things are objective and that those things predict these, you know, these judgments or attitudes that we have about things like policy, for example. And my other work. I don't measure morality as much as um, assess people's judgments about it. So people's judgments about the sorts of content that I think counts as, as moral. When people break a rule that seems to be a moral rule, do people say it's blameworthy? And if they do, then, then yeah, some moral sorts of reasoning processes are going along for people, are being sparked for people to... Um, come to that conclusion that it's not it's not a neutral thing actually this is blameworthy or this is play praiseworthy or this is right or this so some of your work has been on moral ambiguity and curiosity could you explain what those terms mean so so what is that yeah so i'll i'll start with curiosity because it's much easier so uh curiosity there's a lot of work on curiosity that i learned a lot about while i was um writing my dissertation or, you know, thinking about my dissertation studies and, and then subsequently writing about them. Curiosity is considered one of this larger suite of epistemic emotions. 
So emotions that relate to, you know, knowledge seeking or, or knowledge, things like doubt or confusion are other characteristic epistemic emotions. And curiosity is really that desire to approach information. So it's a strong desire to approach information. William James, in, in, one, of his, in one of his pieces, uh, defined curiosity as the impulse towards better cognition. And I really like that because the, the impulse word, I think, really captures something like special about curiosity that's just like really tough to ignore drive to seek out information or to reconcile the thing that's sort of like you know itching itching at you i think about you know when somebody asks you oh who's that actor in you know x show or something and for some people you really have to look it up really need to know who that actor was who played that person there's i just need it's a need and so Curiosity in the moral domain is, and, and how I've been studying curiosity and, and thinking a lot about curiosity is doing all the same thing. So, you know, driving us towards information or understanding something that has a, a moral flavor to it. So, you know, understanding why someone did something really morally bad. But again, that yeah impulse towards some acquiring some knowledge for knowledge's sake. Moral ambiguity is is much more difficult to to define, and I'll just give the two kind of bigger definitions that I pull on, including the one that I pulled on a lot in my in my dissertation work. So ambiguity can really refer to an actual action. So when we think about an ambiguous action, what we very likely mean by using that label ambiguous is that it's not really clear whether or not it's good or bad. Maybe there's something about the intentions of the person that have made your understanding of the goodness or badness of that action sort of unclear. But when we're thinking about someone's character, their moral character, which is the sort of ambiguity I've been studying a lot and and what my dissertation work was on then ambiguity can mean more things so you know uh, ambiguity can mean somebody who tends to do those kinds of sort of unclear things so they do a lot of unclear things you're not sure what their intentions are so they're they're just ambiguous right it's not clear how to categorize them and then there's another sense in which someone can be ambiguous and that's when they do both obviously good things and both obviously bad things. And so now the mean is again somewhere in the middle. It's not really clear whether they're in their essence good or bad. So they are they sort of get the same ambiguous kind of label frequently. And in entertainment, they're frequently referred to as ambiguous. So Tony Soprano and Dexter Morgan are, are just like this. They do egregious, bad things, things that are very clearly bad, right? Like murder. And then they do a bunch of good things, things that are really clearly good, really value family. And so it, it creates this tension for the for the observer, for okay, do I think in their heart this person is truly good or bad deep down? And do I like them? All of those sorts of things are are tied up in this the poles of their character. And so most of my work focuses in on that kind of ambiguity, 
but I recognize that there are other ways that people can be and ambiguous and actions can be ambiguous. Could you explain a bit about the study that you did on moral ambiguity and curiosity? Also getting kind of this data from Netflix and stuff. I think people will find that really cool. (laughs) So this whole project was inspired by two different things. One is our fascination with bad guys, ambiguous characters in entertainment and The other piece that really inspired a lot of thinking on this is Susan Wolfe's piece on moral saints, in which she argues that it's really strange to be a moral saint, to be really morally good all the time in in different ways. And you can be a moral saint in different ways, but it's sort of strange and we don't like it. (laughs) There's nothing about it that's just like not cool at all. But then if you watch Tony Soprano, right? He is cool. So what is it that even though if you ask anybody who's better, they it's so obvious who's better. If you ask anyone who they'd rather be, maybe it's a little less obvious, actually, who people would rather be like, since there's some coolness stuff. And yeah, some other things going on there. But you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Really thinking about how people tend to make their moral judgments, how people tend to to judge others and who they want to affiliate with. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense how interested we are in people like Tony Soprano or Walter White. So those studies were really designed to try to figure out why we like these people so much. And there is work already on this that I want to make sure I point out in the media psych space, there's a bunch of work on what makes a morally ambiguous character and why people find them engaging and when people identify with them. My studies look at this from a slightly different angle and we use a bunch of different methods. We pulled from, you know, methods that tend to be used in, in media psych and from social psych and all over. And we wanted to see if even though people are willing to tell you that it's really effortful to engage with bad content that they still want to and that they still do. So what we first did was look at some Netflix data. So at the end of 2021, Netflix started releasing this publicly available data about the hours watched for Netflix for their top performing shows. Presumably the catalog of Netflix is almost infinite. And so you have shows that have never been watched and, and things like that. So they it's a subset of a subset of, of shows and movies. Um, and so we just started collecting those weekly. So the top shows that were watched every week for a five month period. And so we have this really rich data set of hours watched and we have some codes for like how long the show tends to be for the genre of the show or movie. And then we had a separate sample of so independent raters rate those shows on a bunch of different things. So they rated them on how morally good or bad the protagonist was. And they rated them on how effortful it is to watch this show, how much they thought they learned from watching this show or movie and some other ones. And so then we just checked to see if there was a correlation between how immoral someone was and how many hours were watched. And and there was. So the more immoral, the more hours spent watching shows and movies on Netflix. And this 
is true even when we control for things like the average amount of time watch, the genre, for um, how much learning, how effortful people think it is. And effort and immorality go in opposite directions. So the more effortful, the less people want to watch. But the more effortful, the more immoral. So people find immoral things effortful, but they nonetheless want to watch them. <laughs> so um, there's something that's pulling them up, even though it's really effortful. And then I guess the question is, why? So why would yeah. this be something that we do? Yeah, so that's really correlational. So it's hard to really point to why in that data set. So we did some follow-up research that used a paradigm that's been used in the study of empathy. So it's a paradigm from Daryl Cameron's lab. And it's a behavioral choice task where you, in our case, we had it where you choose whether you want to have some description of the agent who's done something good, bad, or ambiguous, or you want mind explanation information about somebody who's good, bad, or ambiguous. And so we just had people choose between those things. And we find that people, and this is this is actually the, the punchline of, of my dissertation, is that I really thought this was going to be about morally ambiguous stuff. But the Netflix data, and then these studies that we that we ran suggested it's it's badness, the moral badness that makes people really interested. So people want to hear the explanations for the bad guys way more than they do for the the good or or the ambiguous target. Though when we look in the fictional space, they want to learn about Tony Soprano and those kinds of characters more than, you know, Captain America or something like that. But when we move it out of the fictional space, it's it's actually just the bad guys that people want to learn a lot about. And so we, we had that data and then we were like, okay, really, why is this happening? And so we have a different paradigm that holds the, the information constant. And then people had to select between different targets that they want that piece of information for. And then in this paradigm, it, it allowed us to ask some of these follow-up questions. Okay, how much do you expect to learn about this person? How curious are you about this person? that you've selected before we tell you anything about about them, before we reveal anything about them. And when we ask the questions in, in this way, we find that people expect to learn more about the immoral immoral agents than they do the morally good ones. But after we've revealed this explanatory information, they say that they actually learned more from the good guys than they did from, from the bad ones. So there's some mismatch there that like, it's possible that it will be revealed to me something really unique and interesting for the bad guys in a way that isn't quite there for the good ones. But when we learn all the ways that people have been good in their life, you know, helps an old lady cross the road, you know, we're using very, very commonly used morally good and bad actions in these vignettes that we created people say that they learned a lot from it oh maybe i can help a old lady cross the road or you know whatever it is so i think that this learning piece is playing a big role in driving especially curiosity and there's some 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 older work on curiosity that suggests that people expect that 
when they get their answer, it's going to be really satisfying that the urge is so strong. And when I get there, it'll be so satisfying. But when they get there, it often fails to be as satisfying as expected. And that's kind of what we find with the bad guys. People say that they're really interesting. They select them very frequently. They want to learn about them. They say they expect to learn about them. They say they're really curious about them, but they don't find the explanation all that satisfying. So we measure that at the final time point and satisfaction is lowest for the immoral agents compared to the morally good ones. Yeah. So could one of the reasons we want to learn more about these bad characters could that be motivated by the fact we assume everyone's good? So if if someone's doing something off that thing that is moral objective truth, we all think we should follow, we want an explanation to why? Definitely. So a lot of what I think and a lot of what my dissertation introduction is about is about like how people understand their worlds who is good, how frequently people tend to be good, who is bad, and how frequently people tend to be bad. And so I think that although my studies don't have data specifically to speak to this, what I really think is happening is that people are motivated to maintain and understand the contours of their moral world, make sense of, ooh, this person was egregious. I need some explanation for how this person or why this person was this way so I can help make sense of a world where I think that most people tend to be good. And it's true that most people tend to be good. And that's a, a feature of moral badness, right? That it you could be bad in, in way more ways than you can be good than the amount of ways that you can be good because people tend to be good. And so it's like what a much smaller set of possible actions in that bubble. But we do find, and this is something that's really motivating a lot of my research or what I've been thinking about lately, we do find that when some, when an agent seems exceedingly morally good, so more a moral saint, people are interested in them and they want to learn about them. So, and I have some data to speak to this too. So it isn't just moral valence that is making people curious, but how typical the agents are. Bad agents tend to be atypical, but if you can make a good agent look atypical, they're also pretty interesting. One of the things that you were asking, Jordan, was why? Why would we be curious about these morally ambiguous or morally bad characters? And so... One of the things that this reminded me of in general, this idea of people being curious about badness or wrongness, is this research that in general looks at why people are curious about bad things. So not in the moral domain, but just bad things in general. And there's evidence that people, if they're in a study and they're told you could see a really gross image of someone's wound, an open gash, that they want to look at it and they want to see very disgusting images both in terms of their morally disgusting images and also just bodily gross things um and so there's been some research looking at why that is and i thought that it seems it could apply to some of the things that you were talking about specifically jordan was mentioning that she thinks one of the things going on is actually that people are interested in these extremes 
So not necessarily always morally bad agents, but also people who are weirdly good. So anything that's kind of out of the ordinary. And there's this one paper in the more general morbid curiosity domain that was trying to distill the motives that people might have to learn about gross things or just bad things in general. And they kind of broke it down into three different types of motives. And the first is these so-called informational motives where people are interested in just learning more and acquiring knowledge, which is basically what curiosity generally is. And so one of the reasons that they argue people might be interested in gross things or bad things in general is to reduce uncertainty because as you were saying Beth a lot of the times people aren't really encountering people who are morally bad so they might be wanting to better understand those people and reduce the uncertainty in their worlds to kind of be able to better understand why the people do what they do especially when Jordan was saying that they're specifically interested in an explanation for why they're doing what they do and I also think in terms of the morally bad people, it really ties into this other motive that in this paper, which we'll link on our in our show notes, this is by Susanna Osterweik and Esther Niehoff, where they talk about also another motive, which is a social motive, where specifically they want to they they argue that people want to know about bad things that happen to other people so that they can avoid it themselves mm-hmm. and also so that they can get a better understanding, a kind of better theory of mind of how this might happen and why this might happen. And I think with morally bad characters that's probably especially strong where you're kind of in an evolutionary perspective if you're if I'm motivated to defend myself from threats in the environment then it's really in my best interest to be able to really kind of understand how this person might harm me because if I were to be harmed by this person it would be really bad as opposed to someone who's just run-of-the-mill gonna do something average to you maybe yeah I think because I think I remember we spoke about this on one of our other episodes and wasn't that also why when people see an accident or something on the road, you you want to look and see see what it is. And one of the explanations was, well, we want to get information about that. So if we happen to be in an accident or ex- experience, I don't know, be close to an accident, one of those things, we have as much information as we can so we can know what to do in those situations. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember this also related back to the people who were really interested in doomsday zombie scenarios and they and they were always interested in you know watching those movies kind of prepper type people but then it turned out during the pandemic they did actually overall cope better because they did have all this information previously about these kind of scenarios that that we were in so I guess that shows that that it does work to do that yeah that's true I actually forgot about that but (laughs) yeah I do remember us talking about that that people who were more likely to watch zombie apocalypse movies were faring better during the pandemic because which kind of proved this maybe they were actually preparing which is kind of interesting because it's oh well are people who are super weary of these kind of nefarious characters are they more likely to be able to protect themselves against those type of people but I also think that we have I feel there's an image of a person who's maybe very avoidant and is really worried that everyone is out to get them and they see the world as morally bad that I feel it doesn't necessarily feel those people are well prepared to deal with life perhaps (laughs) so I'm not sure I'm not sure what Jordan's research speaks to on that point and another thing I thought and we kind of touched on this a bit but it, it she mentions that it gets a bit confused with what what coolness is but I thought well why does why do we always love the bad guy because <laughs> it's not just we're curious about them we love the bad guy that's that's your personal question yes <laughs> <laughs> that's 
I don't know if everyone else relates. Yeah, maybe that's more of a Beth question. <laughs> well, you know, so in, in this other paper um, where they talked about general reasons why people might be morbidly curious, one of their reasons is also the third motive is emotional motives. Mm. And so that's specifically that people might just enjoy the arousal that they get from something bad which maybe is i feel intuitively that feels the draw of a bad boy or a bad girl if that's what we're talking about (laughs) and that there's this kind of positive relationship between the desire for thrill and adventure and and there's a there's a a positive correlation there between people who are thrill seeking and people who are interested in negative content Mm. and also people argue that there's a possibility that people might be curious about these things to experience those emotions and live those emotions and understand them in a safe space. Mm. So like you're so in the context of a TV show, for example, or a study, you know, you might be, oh, I want to see what this what this gash looks like or I want to see what Tony Soprano is going to do next. But maybe if they were in your life, which I think Jordan was also hinting at, you might not want them close to you and you might not want to stick around and see what happens unless maybe you're a thrill seeker like that so one question that i had because so i think when we're talking about this in terms of especially with the information seeking with negative content there's this reason that we were talking about that you might want to explore that negative content which is that you're just less likely to encounter it in everyday life you're less likely to have a tony soprano in your life so you maybe want to explore because of that um And also specifically with the negative content, you have an incentive to explore it to protect yourself from potential threats. Specifically that threat part, I feel with the the moral saints that she was talking about, I kind of was, maybe this is like new data that she wasn't ready to talk about yet, but she mentioned that people are also more curious about strangely morally good people, but Mm -hmm. people also find those people boring, right? Yeah. Did you catch any of that stuff that she was, that reconciling those two things? Yeah, I didn't. And I also thought, yeah, I I didn't really, yeah, I kind of had the same question. If we find them boring, then why are we also really interested in them? But I wasn't sure if maybe these moral saint people who are just extreme too much, then they don't fall into the, maybe it's the semi-saint people who we find boring, but the extreme saints we don't. I, I wasn't really sure. Yeah, and I also feel because she was saying that, you know, a Captain America is less interesting than a Tony Soprano, but I feel a lot of the superhero movies, especially the recent ones, they try to to paint heroes and not a, an only kind of hero light. And maybe if it's a real person also. So in, in that point, I'm saying that maybe Captain America isn't actually morally amazing all the time, yeah. the way that they're depicting him in those films. I don't really know. I haven't seen a Captain America movie since, uh, like, 2010. Do you know I'm a massive Marvel fan? I did not know that. <laughs> I've seen, like, okay, all the tell Marvel us about... movies. Really? I'm, like, obsessed, yeah. Because okay, I'm... then are are they painted as, like... No, like... They're, not, they're not moral saints. But I would agree that <laughs> Captain America is less interesting than Tony Soprano. I think that's a fact. But they're not these, they all have something, you know, they're battling and they don't always do the right Right. thing. And yeah, exactly. So maybe they are more just kind of run of the mill people. I feel that's what, I mean, they're run of the mill people with superpowers, I guess. (laughs) So what would a, can, do we even have an example of a moral, complete moral saint? I don't know. I actually can't think of anyone. 
I feel I know people in my own life. Really? Yeah. Like someone's mom, you know, someone who's just been through a ton of stuff and they're just like, they never get mad at anyone. I had a friend who, when I was growing up, her mom was the sweetest person in the world. I couldn't, I could never picture her yelling or anything. And my friend would always get so mad at her because she would be, imagine living with this woman. (laughs) Sometimes you're just mad and you want your mom to yell back and she'll never yell back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel I know, especially some women like that who have just been dealt a not the best hand and who handle it ridiculously well. And I feel maybe, maybe it's just that idea that when people are really exceptional, you want to know what's going on again because of just that rarity and wanting to understand the kind of boundary conditions of your world of why why can some people be like this in a way that I can't even fathom maybe it works both ways at the extreme but maybe in fiction it's not as interesting because because when usually in a fictional world you can build the world the way that you want as well in addition to the characters whereas a real person you know they're dealing with an imperfect world too so I don't know that's funny. I just don't think I'm trying to think about these moral saints that you've because I know what you mean about the woman who always does the, the right thing and never gets angry. But for some reason, I would assume a moral saint was something above that. For me, it would be someone who's not just really lovely, but also going out of their way to do amazing themselves to do things. I think that's how, that's a moral saint. That's what that's where my boundary is. <laughs> my world boundary of a moral saint is someone who not only never gets angry and can handle anything, they sacrifice things in their own life to help everyone around them that's what how who i would think Mm, i see what you're saying yeah yeah that's kind of interesting i guess that's maybe also something jordan studies with what do we what do we categorize as praiseworthy Mm. because that i think that's kind of also what was interesting and might come down to this as well of what we were talking about at the start is well what are are these moral values objective truths (laughs) and is a moral value sacrificing yourself for the greater good or is it like I think those questions are so interesting and when we're trying to think about it in this scientific lens and our feeling towards it the way we perceive moral values ourselves feel objective but then yeah even me and you are very similar people but we're just thinking about this moral saint and we already have a different idea of what that looks like, which I think says a bit about how we see morality. Yeah, I think I think that's also something good to remember. And when we talk about moral psych, it's so different than when we talk about morality and ethics in general, because I think most of the time when we talk about these types of topics, it's what are we defining as morally good and what are we defining as morally bad? And I think psychology really often tries to skirt those questions by saying by being descriptive in the sense of what do people think and normative in the sense of what do people think should happen rather than normative in the sense of what should this actually be and i think also that's just a good thing to think about when we listen to jordan talk about normative versus descriptive is normative really just means what people think should happen not what actually should be which i think in other fields is definitely a different type of description and yeah i think I, that's what I like about psychology, to be honest, is that we get to, off, a lot of times we get to leave the hard thinking to other people. Yes. <laughs> so this is what people think. You 
as philosophers <laughs> or other humanities can do with that what you will but this is this is what people think <laughs> yeah and i think it's interesting how psychology can kind of skirt those questions and i think jordan almost was because she was answering how does how does psychology operationalize it and it's just oh we operationalize it by kind of looking through the philosophy literature and saying this is one way to look at it maybe some people have this more utilitarian perspective like beth was saying of the greater good and sacrificing things for the the good for most people or you know philosophy also says that sometimes we should have these specific rules and then we say okay what do you guys think what do you think is right and then there's this other way of just what do you feel like is objectively wrong because we all have this kind of sense and i think that kind of elusive feeling is really interesting too and i feel her stuff would be so interesting to do cross-culturally as well yeah to look at interesting yeah what what other cultures are watching on netflix yeah (laughs) you've also done some research on phantom rules would you be able to explain what, because I hadn't heard of a phantom rule before this, and then I was reading your stuff and I was like, oh, this is something <clears throat> that happens all the time. If you could just explain, yeah, what a phantom rule is and what kind of work you've done around them. Yes, I'm so happy to talk about phantom <laughs> rules. It's my pet project for my graduate career. I, yeah, I, I it just got published also very recently um, or accepted for, for publication very recently. So yeah, very excited about Phantom Rules. It's been such a generative space to think. And yeah, so very excited to talk about it. So this all, so the inspiration, I'm very inspired by the things that happen in real life. That's a big place where I draw inspiration for my research. So the the inspiration for Phantom Rules. So I played tennis in undergrad and I was a to say it nicely to myself, uh, a, a less emotionally stable tennis player than I am a human. Yeah, gotcha. um, <laughs> and I always felt singled out, even though other tennis players who are maybe predominantly male tennis players who expressed similar levels of anger didn't seem to be policed in the same way that I was and so like I always felt just like I feel so singled out in this space and you know that was fine I I got through it you know fast forward a couple years I'm watching Serena Williams play somebody who's been singled out you know to a very extreme extent for very different reasons but I'm watching her play the 2018 US Open final and she gets penalized in the final you know towards the end of the match for getting coached which is something every person who plays tennis knows every person is being coached all of the time it's just a fact of the matter it is true that it is against the rules technically but it happens all of the time and this is like being singled out right People are breaking rules all around you, but only you're really getting in trouble for it. And so I started thinking a lot about that, about what it means for something to be a rule, really, when nobody follows it. And when you think about it at all, you you see them everywhere. So, you know, things like jaywalking, I'm living in New York City at the time, jaywalking is illegal. 
but people are doing it all the time. You don't have to be in New York for more than 10 minutes to see that it's totally normal to do this, this thing that's illegal, loitering. I mean, there's so many of them. And so we really set out to see if it's, you know, an academic distinction. It's only really us who are thinking that these are sort of funky and weird, or if people are reasoning about these rules in different ways, and they reason about similar rules. And so we define a phantom rule as a codified rule that's descriptively normative to break. So the like, descriptive norm information and the codified information are sort of at odds or their intention with one another. And it's really conceptually interesting when one of them is going to win out. When does the descriptive information win out and you decide to jaywalk? When does the codified information win out and you're like, oh, no, I shouldn't jaywalk or, oh, no, that person shouldn't jaywalk. And so a lot of the work that we've done in the phantom role space is to see whether, you know, other people have this intuition that these rules are sort of different, whether they have a unique sort of affective signature and whether they behave in unique ways such that they're more subject to motivated enforcement than other kinds of rules. And and that's basically what we find, that people do think that they're different somehow than other similar rules, than other similar social norm rules. So, you know, don't wear a tuxedo to a funeral or something, you know, something that's not actually codified, but it's similar in the norm space, but it doesn't have that same codification. It, it actually has, it has, it exerts some power over how people act. People don't tend to do that in a way that's really different from a phantom rule. So people are, are very able to distinguish those kinds of rules. And then they also distinguish them from rules that are codified but aren't normal to break. So stopping at a red light, for example, in terms of its severity, it's really similar to to the kinds of things that are that we in the legal space have identified as as phantom rules. But it is codified just like them. But people don't tend to break them, and so yeah, people will pull these rules apart. And then, in terms of what that means, we find that phantom rules, these these rules that are descriptively normal to break, are more subject to motivated enforcement that when people are motivated, we, we've done this in economic games, we've done it in, in survey research, when you're motivated, because maybe in the economic game situation, maybe somebody acted selfishly. So what we do in a sort of modified version of the dictator game, where one person is allocating some money, splitting money between themselves and another person who has no say. We added a third observer. So this third observer is the participant and they're going to decide whether or not to enforce the rules of the game. And in one condition, the person who's allocating the money is really fair. They break a rule that everyone breaks. We tell the observers, everybody breaks this rule. They break that rule but they're fair the whole time. And then in the other condition, they break the same rule that everybody tends to break, but they're not very fair. They're pretty selfish the whole time. And we find that people enforce the rule much more frequently for the selfish person than they do for the fair person, even though the rule is exactly the same. So you have this legitimate avenue for punishment when it like suits your your goals or your desires. We have some some budding data on this in, in the real world as well, looking at 311 calls that end in arrests in New York City. So people call 311, they're non-emergency municipal calls. So people call 311 for things like 
noise complaint or ticket scalping, things of that sort, things that have very phantom ruley flavor to them. And we find that looking, so looking in New York across 10 years, controlling for volume of calls, controlling for everything that we could control for, we find that calls that are made in neighborhoods where the census data tells us that there is a minority percentage of white residents, that those calls more frequently end in arrest than they do in neighborhoods where there's a majority of white residents. So we have some evidence in an experimental way that there there is something special about these rules and their legitimacy and their seeming actually morally relevant at all is really determined by whether or not people are motivated to enforce them. And then we have some data on some of the consequences of these kinds of rules existing in the real world. Yeah, I think that's really nice because we all see this happening, you know, with police and enforcement. Everyone sees this, this is no question that this is happening. So I think it's really nice to have this understanding of what this is, how this is playing out. Do you think then that we have kind of developed this phantom rule space, whether we did this or or we were aware of it or not, to have something where we can do this kind of motivated punishment? Because it feels it is this kind of way we can seek revenge or do something. Mm -hmm. And and also then it's morally okay as well, which is weird Mm -hmm. because it's a rule. Mm Yeah. Yeah. I, I have thought so much about this question. I don't have a great answer, honestly, but you know, a charitable interpretation of, of the, the typical case of these rules is that they were maybe created to, for some social order function and just like no longer relevant. Historically, they might've been relevant and now they just are not. There are blue laws also that are kind of similar to that. Blue laws are, if if you've ever watched Parks and Rec, they they, they talk about blue laws like in Pawnee, it's illegal to hold a chicken or whatever. And that rule was probably created for a really specific thing that mattered then and now it doesn't matter at all. Those, those rules are, are different, obviously, than phantom rules because people don't break them all the time. They're sort of, they seem sort of silly now, but, you know, way back in history, they might have had some relevance. And so, you know, for some phantom rules, that, that might be true. For, for some of them, it's hard to imagine that that's true. It, it does seem maybe more pernicious or something as a way to maybe police certain populations more than others. In the case of jaywalking, the history of jaywalking is really interesting. And there's been work on the history of jaywalking, but jaywalking is a rule that was lobbied for by car companies to get people more interested in in driving. And and a J is a derogatory term for somebody who was poor or somebody who was, you know, maybe a minority status to get white women to want to buy cars. So, you know, that one is, you know, maybe a little more clear that it was a very specific rule created to police a very specific population, but, you know, that they emerge across different domains, right? They really emerge in tennis. They 
you can imagine them in in academia you can imagine them in in the workplace kind of more broadly you know that they emerge across these contexts I, I'm not sure all of the time they have that same very pointed nature but you know it's it's also possible <laughs> yeah you spoke about this at the beginning but you also have done research around moral beliefs and how they influence our harm reduction policies which is super interesting also something that i think is super relevant in australia around drug use and stuff that's a big conversation and I'm, i think it's the same in the you i mean probably a lot of lot of places yeah so could you talk a bit about about that work so like i mentioned at the beginning <laughs> your question about how you operation operationalized morality is a hard one because it's really hard to measure these things exactly how you mean to measure them. And so part of this project was really about how do we assess the kind of thing that we mean to assess here. And so, like I said, to measure people's moral attitudes or moral beliefs about various relevant public policies, we pulled measures from a bunch of different moral researchers to create this composite that had some of that objectivity, absolutism kind of features of morality, and some of the more affective things like moral outrage kind of thing. And so what we are interested in is building on work done by McCoon that suggests that moral outrage predicts less support for harm reduction policy. And so we wanted to build and extend that work and really try to understand how when people moralize something, when I'm holding it, you know, close to my heart, am I always, you know, against a policy that is reducing the harm associated with the thing that I've moralized? And and we find similar to the McCoon paper and, and his work on the subject, we find that as people moralize something, as they hold it closer to them, not just outrage but feel like it's a matter of right and wrong and black and white it's so clear you know that this thing is wrong as they hold that close people are more likely to have less support for policies that are explicitly aimed at reducing the harm associated with that behavior and we find this across many domains so we looked at we looked at gun ownership we looked at unemployment we looked at risky sex. That's another one people hate. And we looked at we looked at cigarette smoking as well. And one really cool accidental part of this project was we collected multiple samples of these same measures to try to hone our measure of moral opposition to these these issues and collected them over time. And we started with the cigarette issue, like, okay, the extent to which you morally oppose cigarette smoking, and we offered vaping as the harm reducing solution. And at the at time one, we get the pattern that we would expect, the more people morally oppose cigarette smoking, the less they support vaping as a as a harm reduction policy. But then it changed because vaping changed and how people reason about vaping changed over the course of our data collection. And so we can see this inflection point in our data, which is really cool, especially as like moral researchers researching the kinds of things that people really encounter in day-to-day -day life compared to, you know, there's a lot of moral 
psychology on trolleys and dilemmas, which are useful and can help us understand how people reason about these things. But it was sort of cool to be researching it while it's changing and while we're not sure how people are going to form their opinions about this thing. And what we basically find was that when vaping was called into question as an effective strategy for, for reducing harm, it's, it's no longer seen as an effective strategy. So yeah, we see basically that effect totally or that relationship totally go away. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's also because when I was looking at your work and I was thinking about this, because I was thinking if you think about your morals, uh, you would think a really strong moral would be harm reduction. I really morally believe harm should be reduced everywhere. And I just thought it was interesting that there, there was this trade-off, well, if you really thought something was wrong. Then you shouldn't do it at all. Yeah, but then it's if you really care about harm, if you really also think that's wrong, then shouldn't you want them more of the reduction? It just feels... Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's so counter to what you would hope yeah. people would yes. want, right? If I really don't want people to be harmed by unemployment, by not having yeah. sufficient housing, by not having sufficient food, I really think that that's a problem, then I should support federal funding for unemployment, but there's something about letting people do something that you let them continue to do something that, that you find immoral, that really bugs people. You know, I think when people talk a lot about aversion to harm reduction, they focus a lot on drugs. And I think the intuition is particularly strong there that if I really don't like that, that you're doing drugs, then a clean needle exchange, it's somehow making me complicit in your, your doing something I find morally wrong, even though it's totally counter to what we know is effectual harm redu reducing, right? Like abstinence, getting people to totally stop, being cold turkey kind of stuff doesn't work. This is the thing that works. And, and it's just really hard to get people to break from their moral belief in, in that case. We also measured people's harm attitudes. So how harmful do you oh, think that this yeah. is? And when we ask them that question, so not the moral question, we ask them how harmful is this? You see a positive correlation between how harmful and support for harm reduction policy. So the more harmful I think it is, the more I support you reducing the harm associated with it. But the more moral I think it is, the less I support it. So what about something, there must have been circumstances where people thought it was really mor morally wrong and it caused a lot of harm? Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't look at the person level. Okay. We looked across right. people. So I, I, but I mean, that is super interesting. Certainly there are people for whom that's true, but what we were expecting we were expecting a lot of things to happen differently than they did. So moral attitudes and, and harm attitudes, they're, they're super correlated and they're correlated in our data. But we find evidence that they're doing something different. They're just like getting at different pieces of people's attitudes for these things. And, you know, their attitudes for the harm stuff is explaining a positive part of the intuition and their attitudes around the moralness of a particular issue are, are predicting less support for whatever the given issue is. Yeah, so interesting. And 
obviously when thinking about how people are voting and what they care about, this stuff is so cool to think about. morally think someone shouldn't be doing this and you know you can reduce it but you're against it it seems crazy yeah yeah and and just that i think what's so crazy is that we so we probably all have these kind of biases but we don't we're not aware of that so whether these people who you know are really against unemployment or i which i was confused how you can be I get anyway if you're very morally against unemployment but you're maybe you're unaware that that then influences your harm reduction policy belief maybe that's something that's just the way we have this bias but we don't know that so I think that that's super important research and then maybe if we the education changes around that they'll kind of get a bit untangled I don't know yeah that's true I think that's always an interesting question of like if we know this type of research, if we can illuminate the fact that these biases exist, is it enough to tell people that they mm-hmm. have those types of biases? Or is it just, if someone feels drugs are bad, I have a strong moral conviction that drugs are bad, and any amount, maybe it's because with some, and you probably, I feel like I've encountered this with some friends where they feel they have a kind of moral rule or a set of values where any type of transgression no matter how small the degree doesn't matter it's just the kind and if you cross that boundary then it's bad so Mm -hmm. like if you're using a needle even if you're trying to reduce your consumption that's still bad it doesn't matter how much you're doing it matters or what your goal is it just matters that you're doing it and i kind of wonder if that correlates with other personality Mm. traits i would assume that it does because I think that kind of all or nothing perspective is also something that's sort of ingrained in personality. A lot of that stuff in growth mindset versus fixed mindset, which is in growth mindset, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this because it's permeated a lot of spaces, in particular education. But with growth mindset, the idea is that you think that for intelligence, for example, is a paradigm that you intelligence is something that you can work at so being smart is about hard work and if you put in hard work then you'll be smart you'll be able to do well at your math test or whatever and then a fixed mindset is intelligence is a fixed trait Mm -hmm. and some people are smart and some people aren't smart no matter what you do you're not going to change that so maybe if people think if people have those types of fixed views of moral values or maybe fixed views of moral actions if you take drugs once you're a drug addict or something and if you do that one time versus if you do that 10 times, you're still in the same category and that's not going to change. And progress, they don't view progress as happening from like you are addicted and then you get better and then, you know, you're in, what's the word for that? Not remission. I think it is remission. Is it? Okay. <laughs> then you're in remission. I feel it's kind of that black and white thinking versus being able to be okay with some ambiguity and race scales. And there's also yeah. evidence that some people are okay with in eastern cultures that they're okay with um conflicting two conflicting things being true oh i'm Mm -hmm. maybe and maybe that could apply to you're using a needle right now you're using drugs but you're on in the on the journey to get better versus if you're using drugs you're a drug addict yeah This has honestly all been amazing. I have loved this. But before we end, 
Is there any new stuff you're working on or anything exciting you'd like to share? So I just started my postdoc in September. So I haven't had a ton of time to get yeah, a bunch of new research off the ground. But I'm really excited about curiosity. Very, very excited about understanding curiosity in the moral domain and when and why people are willing to put in effort, especially online workers, online MTurk or you know, prolific workers, workers who are doing a ton of these surveys, getting them to put in effort for something, I think is really interesting signal. This thing is especially interesting. So, you know, a lot of what I've been thinking about lately is trying to more deeply understand why people want to put in that effort, what they're getting out of it, what is the utility of this. And then, you know, a, a lot of my postdoc is really focused on understanding that curiosity and that motive to engage and to approach content for pro-social agents. And it's exciting where we just piloted some real world social media messages where people are are signaling charitable donations and and other pro-social attitudes. And we're going to follow up on that to see when people think it's good and authentic and and when they want to learn more about it. When does all of those sort of evaluative conclusions that I come to about a pro-social signal or a pro-social messenger, when do those, regardless of the conclusion I've come to, still spark curiosity for me to like, okay, well, I like the wildlife fund. Let me learn about that. Even if I think you're doing this for virtue signaling or some more selfishly motivated kind of thing. So that's where I'm spending a lot of my time thinking lately and I'm really excited to to like actually get some data, which is coming soon. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.